welcome to the Intro to Drama podcast. I'm your professor, Kate Given. This week's episode continues our exploration of Aristotle's poetics as we take a closer look at the elements of character and theme. You've already read poetics, so this podcast should serve to further some of those ideas within the text and help you as you answer questions three and four of your whitelisted script analysis packet. Let's get started. All right. Hi, everybody. Um, welcome to our lecture on Aristotle's character and thought segments. So today, so we have talked about Aristotle having these six elements of drama in his poetics. And for a refresher, those six elements are plot, character, thought, diction, song, and spectacle. And these are sort of listed roughly in order. Sometimes thought and diction sort of flip-flop, sometimes song and spectacle sort of flip-flop. I think I have flip-flopped them here from the way Aristotle lists them in poetics, but this is the order I was taught them in. I like to, you know, I always talk about how these are tools we're using, not things we're like beholden to. And so that's just, we're just going with it. So today we've already sort of talked about plot, which as we just, we covered in our Zoom call this past Tuesday, I think is, pretty demonstrably the most controversial of Aristotle's um, elements of drama. Because, you know, whether that's, people might have different feelings about what's catharsis or what causes pity, like what they, what they feel about the protagonist. Um, they might take issue with the way Aristotle says plot must be structured. And Aristotle says this is the only way plot can be structured. So of course people have issue with that because of course, that's not the only way plot is structured. Um, but I do find the rest of his elements tend to be sort of more kind of English class standard. There's a little bit, there's, it's not that there's nothing to argue with with the rest of the elements, but they seem, there's a little bit less to argue with, I think. It's more like, oh, it's either this is useful or this isn't useful. It doesn't, like, I haven't noticed the same tension in the other elements. So, we're going to be focusing specifically on character and thought. So talking about character first, you know, this is the second most important element of drama for Aristotle. Plot is the most important. We need to have a story to tell, but character is second most important. We need characters with which to populate that story. So this is, like I was saying, sort of English class standard. That's what we're going with. Um, we need to start by defining each character. We need to know who they're talking about. Um, we need to know what the character's name is, right? Um, we need to know what the character's name means. This is doesn't, I don't think that this actually comes directly from Aristotle, but it sort of gets wrapped up into it in some in the way that some people talk about it. And also we just don't really have a spot for talking about name meaning at a different point in this intro to drama curriculum. So I wanted to add this in here because it's just often a cool thing to talk about it can be fairly illuminating to look up the meanings of a character's name or the associations of that character's name. And some directors, so some directors don't care about this at all. You come up to them and you're like, I found out what this character's name means. And they're like, okay. Um, other directors love this. Um, Dr. Kirk, who is one of the graduate professors, um, I've worked with him as a director and he's really interested in what names mean and what that reveals about character. So that's, pretty cool. And so it just sort of depends on who you're working with. But I think it just can be interesting just to look into. Like we've, I think we talked about within David Ball, the names of plays are chosen for a reason because they mean something and they, um, and they communicate something to an audience. 
meanings of names are like a smaller version of that. Each character is named some, is usually named something for a reason. Not always. Sometimes a character is named something because a playwright liked the name, um, but it's pretty interesting to look into it and say, is there a reason for this? And I actually talking about Dr. Kirk when I was working with him this past spring um, before the productions were to fell apart because of COVID, um, we were working on Sugar in Our Wounds. And I was also working on that production with the, dram the dramaturgy class I was teaching. And those students, um, because I, like I said, Dr. Kirk really does get interested in name meanings. The students who were helping me to work on Dr. Kirk's production of Sugar in Our Wounds um, got really into what the character's name names meant. And I just wanted to give some examples because I think it's easy to just like go to like babynames.com and find like this name means this. And that's that can be helpful, but you can also sort of expand that. Like there's a character named um, actually Isabel in the in Sugar in Our Wounds. And Sugar in Our Wounds uses a lot of like biblical imagery, which is where we went with a lot of these characters. So and Isabel the character in Sugar in Our Wounds is a terrible person. She's sort of a grandmother to Rebecca and whitelisted, I think you could say. And she, so we sort of can, so the students who are helping me with that research went from Isabel to Jezebel um, and sort of found her place in the Bible and sort of were like, okay, we're, we're connecting Jezebel. She's a wicked woman. She's, um, and also the just a phrase like calling somebody a Jezebel, like a tempting kind of woman, right? So we were able to make these connections. And that's the kind of character that Isabel is in this play, Sugar in Our Wounds. There are also characters, there's a character named Henry. And now Henry, we just went straight to, you know, what does his name mean? Um, and it means home, which happens to be appropriate for that character whose driving force is wanting to get home. Or then once he has sort of developed a new home for himself, that becomes important to him. Um, or there's a character named James, which if you look it up means supplanter. So, you know, that which replaces something else. But James is also a brother of Jesus, right? So, and James ends up dying at the end of Sugar in Our Wounds um, in a way that is really analogous, um, analog to the crucifixion. So we sort of have that connection to Jesus that's set up for the audience in the name itself. And then that happens over the course of the play. So we, so I just want to encourage you when I say meaning of name, I don't just mean like babynames.com, like this name means that. Like you can also just like, what are the connections to this name? I just think that's a really cool thing to do with names in script analysis. And it can just open up some interesting places for you to go with your production. And then it's nice to know what is the character's age? What is the character's sex and or gender? Um, occupation, what does the character do, right, with their, with their life, what is their actual job, um, and what are the character's relationships is the last question that you ask when you're defining each character. And this doesn't just mean, um, like we referenced this briefly in David Ball's analysis style when we went over Hamlet, and I did get a lot of answers on when we were talking about like what's the situation, like what are the relationships, um, like Gertrude is Hamlet's mother, right? Or Laertes is Ophelia's sister, or brother, um, and all of that. 
which is true. And I, I love seeing that. And that's good to map those familial relationships or map friendship relationships. Um, but I always like to go a little bit deeper when I'm talking about significant relationships. I like to just not list what the relationship is, but also like some of the emotional weight behind it. Um, so if I'm going through a script, because like knowing the familial relationships helps me, but knowing the emotional tenor of those relationships helps me more. So it's one thing to know that Gertrude is Hamlet's mother. It's another thing to know that Gertrude is Hamlet's mother and Gertrude seems to really love Hamlet. And Hamlet feels really, really cold to, to Gertrude because of her new marriage to Claudius. Um, so I just like to not just talk about significant relationships in terms of like what they are, but also what they mean to the characters within those relationships. And so, this is just sort of bare bones what you need to know about each character. Aristotle has some specific questions that we that I think it's interesting to bring up. And these are questions like, is this character appropriate for their type? Does this character seem true to life? Is this character internally consistent? And so one thing that I want to point out about these questions is Aristotle is really concerned with what is the best person we can present to an audience. So in the Greek theater, when you're watching tragedy as an audience member, you're watching tragedy to learn something. You want to learn some fundamental truth about human nature. You want to learn about how to be a good person, how to avoid being a bad person. You want to learn how to avoid errors um, that would cause you the same downfall as this person who has fallen from um, you know, prosperity to affliction. So I think I think we've already sort of covered how whitelisted is enough of an Aristotelian piece for us to use this type of analysis, but it's also, like, of course it does. It complicates um, an Aristotelian plot. It complicates an Aristotelian point of view. So I think that if whitelisted were, and I don't, hmm, this is interesting. I think if whitelisted is like an out and out Aristotelian tragedy, then, and Rebecca is an Aristotelian, you know, protagonist, then the idea for Aristotle is that by watching this protagonist, you should learn how to avoid her errors, her wrongs. And that presupposes who is the audience doing the watching, right? Because that deals with issues of race and who, who is this play communicating to? So I think whitelisted absolutely complicates what Aristotle sees as like a really common, a really easy equation. Like, these pieces of theater are about rich, rich men, noble men, because those are the good people in Aristotle society. And the people who are learning from these things are either rich noble men who could stand to learn from these rich noble men, or people who are quote unquote less than these rich noble men who can still receive goodness from under from this learning process. Obviously, we're not right, we're not really right there with Aristotle. We have moved past that. We have complicated that as we should. So when Aristotle thinks that you're, that the people watching a tragedy should learn from it. So he's really concerned that people, that the characters in a tragedy are right and proper. Um, less interesting, less important for modern um, artists who are taking this analysis. So, but it does provide interesting information for an analyzer of a dramatic text. So, when we're asking, is this character appropriate for their type? Um, we're basically saying, you know, if we were to take an archetype 
of what we expect this character to be. So in whitelisted, that might be the white, the rich white millennial woman, or it might be the cop, or it might be, um, you know, the homeless woman. Um, so we imagine like an archetype, sort of a standard, like quote, like sort of stereotype um, of this type of character. Does this character seem appropriate? And that gives us interesting information because either they are directly presenting the stereotype without complications, or they're, com they're purposefully complicating the stereotype. Um, and either of those things is pretty illuminating. Or we might say, do they seem true to life? Like, does this seem like a, does this person seem like a real person that you would meet on the street? Um, does this person seem more like a caricature or a simplification? And that's going to give me information about what the script itself is like. Is this is the script um, fundamentally realistic or is the script telling me that some of its rules are that like people are caricatures here and I am making a point with these characters. So that gives, us, gives me more information about the script as well. And is this character internally consistent? And so David Ball answers this sort of in Backwards and Forwards, where he says basically like, yes, pretty much every character is internally consistent. If they seem not to be consistent, there's a reason for that. And you should figure out what it is. Um, and I don't know, you know, maybe a character isn't internally consistent. But in my experience, I would agree with David Ball. Most, um, for most characters, the answer to this question is yes. But if they seem like they're not, that gives me information to say, like, I need to sort of probe what this character does. Like, say, why? Why do they seem not consistent? Am I missing something? Is there a puzzle piece that I'm missing? We're going to talk about that actually in our next format form of analysis, which will be exciting. But basically, you're giving yourself information like about each character um, as they move through the script. And when you're analyzing character, um, just like we said with David Ball, like you would do this for every main character and maybe even the smaller characters as well. And even though these are basic questions, I think keeping the questions fairly basic, keeping the list of questions you ask fairly short enables you to access what each uh, um, information about each character across the whole script, across every character. So it's a little bit, it gets you a lot of information for slightly less time. So I think it's a fairly efficient way of looking at character as well. I actually used this character analysis when I costumed the women, which has, I think, over 100 characters, or maybe it's over 70 characters and I had over 100 costumes. It's a really intense play. I think it's over 70 characters, that's what it is. And I was, and I really think I did this form of, of analysis on easily 30 of those characters um, just to separate them out in my head. Um, and it, I was able to do it because it was a fairly short form of analysis, but I got a ton of information. And so I was able to use that in my costume design to really clearly differentiate different color palettes or different silhouette shapes. Um, and also, too, in this production of the women, there was a ton of doubling. I think we had 30 people for about 70 plus characters. And so it was extra important that those characters be like sharply different from one another. So I was so like, this has really clear real world applications as well. So that's Aristotle and character. And now we're going to move on to thought which I think should be a fairly short section. So we talked about, so Aristotle calls it thought, which I think 
it corresponds fairly closely to what we would also call theme. Um, I, I tend to use those two words interchangeably. But the way you access what the play, what the thought of a play is, you basically ask yourself, what does this play think about? And we know from read, reading David Ball and from reading plays ourselves, that plays think in dialogue and what characters say and the actual words that are said by the characters. So you're reading through this play, like what are the characters talking about? What comes up again and again and again through this dialogue? You can also connect the images that we used when we were um, working through David Ball, you can connect images to Aristotle's idea of thought, right? So what metaphorical images do you see? when a character is speaking about something that you have identified, like, oh, this thing, this same theme, the same idea comes up again and again and again. Do any metaphorical images come when that happens? Um, and that could be a metaphorical image within the language, like we talked about with David Ball. Something that I actually like to throw in here too is this idea of a stage picture. So I actually saw this brilliant production of Phantom of the Opera a couple years ago, several years ago now, and it was the national tour, but they had like completely reworked the staging from the Broadway and it was, it was incredible. Like I think ever there's a sort of idea of like, oh, Phantom of the Opera, right? And fair, Phantom of the Opera, but um, they really reworked the staging in a way that was so unexpected and made like a really, really like, striking piece of theater. That, yeah, it was amazing, but anyway, talking about themes and stage pictures instead of just metaphorical images. This production of Phantom of the Opera thought about the ways that people either meet people where they are or the way that the way that people can or the way that people interact at a power differential. And this production communicated that thought through stage pictures. So whenever the Phantom and Christine were on stage together, the blocking always kept the Phantom above Christine, whether he was up on some stairs and she was level, or she was crouched down away from him and he was looming over her. Um, or, and whenever it was Raul and Christine on stage, it, um, in All I Ask of You, the Act One finale, um, Raul started like sort of, not intentionally towering above Christine, but she was like, sort of cowering on the stage, but he actually crouched down to her and raised her up. And then they com com completed their duet on a level with one another. And then, of course, like, I think by the end of the play, Christine, like, had to crouch down to the Phantom and, like, brought him up to her level. So this, this production, and this isn't something that you would necessarily be able to see in the text of a play, um, although maybe it is, right? Like, if we're thinking about what stage picture happens when Yvette is, like, throwing Rebecca around the room. But that's something you can be aware of or you could be thinking about to yourself, like how, how would this look on stage? And are any, do any images show up either in the text itself through metaphor or can I imagine images showing up in the way this would have to be staged? Um, and that's, that's what, when we're talking about theme, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about what is the play thinking about and how is it completing that thinking? Thank you for listening to this week's lecture about character and theme through an Aristotelian perspective. Feel free to refer back to this podcast anytime you need a refresher on these topics. Take care, stay safe, 
and I can't wait to hear your thoughts in class on Tuesday.